episode of Byzantium and Friends. I am Anthony, your host. In past episodes, we've occasionally discussed the state of Byzantium in popular media, and we've generally found that it's not that good. Now, I should say that there are actually very many historical novels about Byzantium, and many of them are quite good, and then they tend to cluster in the early Byzantine period. There's a bit of a lag for the middle Byzantine period, unless we're talking about Vikings and Varangians, uh, because some of the novels about those kind of become Byzantine novels along the course of the hero's adventures. Um, then there's a whole other cluster around the fall of Constantinople, 1453, and that whole period. When it comes to movies and TV shows, we're not that well served. Uh, you know, we're still waiting for the Byzantine Game of Thrones version or any kind of Hollywood production that isn't just a caricature, so maybe we should wait for those until perceptions shift and we get something better. So one area that I didn't know was active uh, was the comic book world uh, until a few months ago when I received, out of the blue, the proofs for a graphic novel about Byzantium in the 10th century. Its creators asked me to check on some things and I was very impressed by the storytelling and the visual style. And so to punish the creators for their intrusion on my time, I thought I would drag them onto the podcast and have them explain themselves to you. They are Spiros Theocharis, who wrote the story, and Hrisavgi Sakelaropoulou, who did the art. She also goes by Hrisa Sakel. And the story is called Theophano, A Byzantine Tale. You can find it on Amazon. I found it very well done from both a historical and storytelling aspect. Um, I should tell you what it's about. This is not Theophano, the niece of the Emperor Ioannis Tsimiskis, who married Otto II, the German emperor in the West, and moved to the West, and her son was Otto III. And that Theophano, who is often discussed as a transmitter of Byzantine culture to the West, as a different person, uh, this novel is about her contemporary, Theophano, who was the wife, empress of Romanos II, and therefore the mother of Basil II, the Bulgar slayer, and his brother, Constantine VIII. This Theophano appears very prominently in the historical texts of the mid to later 10th century. And depending on which texts you believe, she was either a it's a very beautiful woman of humble origin, like a barmaid who maneuvered her way up in the palace intrigue and was responsible for the murder of a number of emperors, including her father-in-law, possibly her husband, and, uh, conspiring with Tsimiskis to arrange for the murder of Nikiforos Fokas, whom she had married. It's just a very complicated tale. Or else she did none of those things. <laughs> she was a perfectly innocent bystander uh, who was frequently blamed and scapegoated um, in all the maneuverings that all the men around her were engaging in. And, and occasionally someone had to be blamed, and she was frequently blamed. I think she took the fall for the murder of Focas. Tsimiskis had to atone in some way, and out she went. Anyway, this is a very interesting period. And it offers a lot of scope for um, both 
historical inquiry and imaginative reconstruction. And that is exactly what Spiros and Krisa have done. Now, they are not Byzantinists, but they did study the sources and, and the scholarship. And I thought it'd be interesting to get them onto the podcast and get their perspective, uh, in part because moving forward, if we want to see Byzantium represented in more popular media, scholars and, and artists and creative writers are going to have to work together uh, in order to produce the best results uh, for our field and for the civilization that we're so interested in. I was interested in what drew them to this topic and this period, and also in their artistic choices. So I should say that I don't commonly read comic books or graphic novels, uh, but when I started flipping through this, I just found myself reading it all the way to the end in one go. Uh, so it was, it was pretty engaging. Um, so, you know, whether you're into this medium or, or, or not, I encourage you to check it out, especially now that their work is available on Amazon and some other places that uh, Speedos explains at the end of the interview. Uh, this podcast is also available on Medievalist.net. I encourage you to check out that site for more medieval content. And so without any further delay, here is my conversation with Spiros and Krisa. Hello, Spiro and Krisa. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hello. Let's just jump right into it. Um, you have produced the first of a kind that I've ever seen, which is a graphic novel about Byzantine history. Um, and we'll talk later about your design priorities and storytelling interests and so forth. But uh, let me just ask you first, what was your background in, in narrative storytelling or graphic design that enabled you to produce this, uh, this, uh, this wonderful tale? First of all, before beginning, uh, thank you for having us in your podcast. We feel especially honored to be invited here because we are not academics and uh, we don't have any degree related to the field of Byzantine studies. That's perfect. <laughs> my my <laughs> name is uh, Spiros Theocharis. I know it's, uh, Greek names are usually difficult to pronounce. I am the writer of uh, the graphic novel uh, Theophano. Uh, specifically, I wrote the dialogues in the story and uh, I also made uh, uh, most of the historical research uh, regarding uh, Theophano. I was born in Athens, Greece and uh, it's there that I also studied English language and literature at the Capodistrian University of Athens uh, and I work as a tutor of English. I have an experience um, in uh, writing um, through my um, years at the, at the university uh, as I have read a lot of literary books. And I am also a comic book fan. I own a big uh, collection of uh, comic books. What kind of comic books? Mainly uh, superhero comic books <laughs> from uh, the years that I was younger. But I also uh, now have started collecting uh, some graphic novels, which is a more serious genre, I could say. Right. So you're expecting the movie rights to... <laughs> <laughs> as part of the MCU, maybe, or... <laughs> Uh, perhaps, maybe someday, if uh, interest in the Byzantine history <laughs> increases or something like that. <laughs> right. Okay. That'll be a later episode about Byzantine yeah. superheroes. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, Chrisa. Hello. I would like to say that I'm also very, very happy to meet you and talk to you. Uh, my name is Chrisavie Sakilaropoulou, and it is uh, also a big name, so I use the shortened version uh, Chrisa Sakel for uh, the graphic novel. Uh, I'm also born in Greece, and I, from a very young age, I started uh, painting and classes in traditional art. 
and um, I have been focusing more on traditional art the previous years, but right now I want to transition to digital art and comic art. And this is my first uh, attempt. It's my, the first graphic novel that I'm creating. So my cooperation with Spiros brought me to this uh, journey. So you had, never, you had never imagined that your first graphic novel would be about Byzantium? No, no way. No. <laughs> I was very biased about that era, actually. <laughs> really? So if someone had told you five years ago that you would spend, you know, a good part of, I don't know how long it took you, but it would be about Byzantium, you no, you would have said no? That's so no, else. no idea. Actually, I'm, I really like the medieval theme and the tales and the, maybe the medieval fantasy. But uh, Byzantium, no, I had no idea actually what it was. I had no idea what to expect when sure. uh, joined, you know, about it. So what brought you to, to create a graphic novel about Byzantium? Uh, it was my cooperation with Spiros, uh, 100%. I would never do it uh, if it wasn't for him. Okay, so we'll blame him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. So Spiro, what brought you to Byzantium? Uh, well... Except for the fact that I am a comic book fan, I really like reading about history. And one of my favorite uh, periods of history is uh, Byzantine, uh, the Byzantine Empire. So having read a lot of books about the history of the Byzantine Empire, I wondered at some point, I'm not the, the only one who has thought of that, why uh, there is nothing related to the Byzantines uh, in what we call pop culture. When I say pop culture, I mean movies, TV series, or even graphic novels. And I am really, I'm sure that um, stories like the ones of Emperor Justinian or Irene of Athens would be really interesting, even to those who don't know much about uh, Byzantium, uh, because of uh, the plot, the intrigue, and uh, all this, these things that happens to uh, these protagonists. Why do you think that Byzantium is absent from these kinds of media of popular culture? That's a quite complicated matter. Uh, I don't think uh, that I am specialized to answer that. But uh, in my own opinion, I think that um, it has to do with uh, a widespread ignorance and misunderstanding regarding uh, Byzantium itself. As we know, the name Byzantium was never used actually by uh, the people who uh, lived during that time. And uh, many people don't actually know that uh, Byzantium was actually the continuation of uh, uh, the ancient uh, Roman Empire. And um, if that uh, became uh, more uh, known uh, to the people, I think this would uh, uh, increase the interest uh, towards this uh, era. Yeah, because ancient Rome is, is definitely well represented in popular culture all over the place. But it's often represented in indirectly um, as a kind of template for imagining stories like Star Wars, for example, right? The whole transition from Republic to Empire is just a straight up Roman story. The interesting thing about Byzantium is that it, it is used sometimes in that way. It just also remains kind of invisible sort of behind the scenes. So, I mean, you're right. It's, it's not represented and also it lacks the kind of sort of fantasy dimension that the medieval West sometimes has, right? Like it doesn't have that kind of mythology. It doesn't have things like, 
you know, monsters and I mean, at least not very prominently, it has theology and that does not lend itself to popular culture. So if you think about like, uh, like Tolkien, right? The kingdom of Gondor, that's modeled on Byzantium. Yeah, even in the movies it was. Uh, now that you mentioned uh, Tolkien, uh, <laughs> I have read somewhere that uh, he actually was inspired uh, by Byzantine history when he wrote uh, the third book. Uh, there's a similarity between some occurrences in uh, The Return of the King, uh, where, you know, I, they hope uh, the listeners know uh, when the, king, the Kingdom of Rohan actually intervenes um, and uh, in the last moment saves um, the capital city of Gondor, Minas Tirith, is actually, this is actually similar to something that happened in uh, Byzantine history when uh, Bulgarian uh, Khan, uh, King uh, Tervel, actually saved um, Constantinople during the siege uh, of Constantinople. I don't remember actually when this siege happened, but I remember that a Bulgarian Khan saved uh, the city. Uh, during the siege by the Arabs. Yeah, early early 8th century. Oh, 8th century, yes. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. And I, even the, um, the the dark speech of Mordor that Tolkien based that on Turkish act. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But again, those templates are kind of hidden. Um, so, I mean, that's why we're talking about them. Otherwise, they uh, would be too obvious. Krista, uh, did you want to add to uh, this? I wanted to discuss the question you asked to Spiros. Uh, because I have a lot to say as uh, someone who used to represent the majority of, you know, Greeks my age. Before I met Spiros, I had no idea about Byzantium and the Byzantine era. Uh, my knowledge uh, was very poor and it only consisted of some things I still remembered from high school. I think that uh, it, it's not a very popular era because... Uh, people are biased uh, towards uh, that time. And they uh, associate it with uh, extreme religiosity and some uh, boring classes they had uh, during high school. And uh, everyone you meet in the street and you try to talk about uh, that time, they are always uh, reacting in a way like, oh, this is kind of boring. This is a matter that uh, a nerd would discuss. And, most people don't know uh, many things, many uh, very interesting things and very impressive things about Byzantium. And actually, uh, me, myself, when I encountered these things in the texts we read about uh, the timeline we were uh, creating in the graphic novel, I was very, very impressed. And my view of uh, that time completely changed. Right. I mean, if, as you say, you approach someone on the street in Greece and ask them about Byzantium, they'll think, you know, you're, <laughs> you're trying Here. to, yes, yeah, there's something either in the church, you're trying to get them to join a monastery or some. Exactly. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, we don't. I would like to add to that, uh, that it's quite ironic to say, and a lot of people don't know that, but uh, a lot of people have, uh, are, uh, how to say, have an ignorance about uh, Byzantine history or uh, they uh, mislearn it during their school years. So as Chrisa said, they associate it mostly with uh, theology or theological matters or Christianity and not with uh, the history itself and uh, the culture, which uh, is actually present <laughs> right now in the modern Greek uh, society, beginning from 
the traditional dances, from um, continuing to music, or even to uh, daily speech. We still use some phrases which uh, uh, are inherited from the Byzantine era. I think that it's it's a problem of imagination, really, and and this is why it's so interesting to talk to you because you've made that leap, you know, from what is um, commonly known or not known uh, generally in Byzant um, about Byzantium in Greece, or that you learned from in school, to imagining it in a very different way, as you have in a graphic novel, it, as an imperial culture. It's an imperial version of sort of vernacular medieval Orthodox culture, and this is very difficult to do because the Ottoman conquest basically decapitated all of the sort of political elites and the whole imperial side of Byzantine civilization, leaving only what was happening locally, more or less. And so, you know, Greeks can associate Byzantium with folk traditions, going to church, your local monastery, things, you know, vernacular speech, but they don't have in their mind an image of that culture in its imperial form. And that's what you represent uh, very vividly, right, in the novel. And it just, it gives it a very different dimension, which it's lacking. And I think the, the failure to visualize it that way, that it's being kept as a vernacular rather than an imperial high culture, I think that's the biggest leap to make. Um, that's why I mentioned before uh, pop culture, because uh, pop culture has to do mainly with visual representation of things. Even music now has video clips and everything has to do with... Uh, uh, things that we see. A graphic novel was the best that we could do at least because we are not filmmakers uh, to represent an era and try to attract an audience which uh, uh, does not entirely understand uh, Byzantium or doesn't have to, time to read about it because it's thousand years uh, of uh, story that uh, I don't know that some, uh, someone has the uh, patience to, to do that, to start from the beginning in order to be able to understand it. I wanted to get to the visualization aspects uh, a, a bit later on, but first let me ask you, why did you choose this particular period? Uh, so your novel is set in the mid to later 10th century, um, mostly mm -hmm. in Constantinople. So why did you choose that period and that set of characters and, and the story? Because I think that uh, this period um, has the best possible representation of uh, the medieval Romans and the medieval Roman Empire to the general audience. It is an era uh, where uh, the main pillars of identity of the Romans are indisputably the dominant elements of the Byzantine world, uh, like, for example, the Greek language, the Orthodox faith, and the Roman identity and uh, culture. So I thought of presenting something that is um, glorious or um, something that shows uh, uh, that uh, the Byzantine Empire was on the rise and not um, on the decline because uh, most people associated with an era of decline, of uh, corruption and generally with a lot of uh, negative thoughts about it. Yeah, so that's, that's why point. I chose the 10th century Byzantine Empire because of this golden era of the Macedonian uh, dynasty. Yeah, and what drew you to these characters in particular? It depends on which characters. First well, your, all, protagonist, me, your protagonist yes, is Theophano. Yes, let me start with the protagonist, with uh, Theophano. Yeah. She's a character that uh, is not well known as other historical characters that I mentioned before, like, for example, Justinian or Empress Theodora or... 
Uh, I even thought of creating a story about Alexis Komnenos, who is uh, uh, pretty famous as a character. Uh, we wanted our readers to be unbiased while reading the story. And um, as I said before, there are a lot of negative concepts, such as extreme religiosity or backwardness regarding Byzantium. And um, I believe that uh, these can be overturned with Theophanes' story, as um, see this story uh, resembles nothing of what someone could expect from a life of a woman who lived during uh, the medieval times. Uh, because uh, Theophanes, as a character, is a strong female character who dealt with historically who dealt with. Uh, three different uh, and I could say powerful emperors. And um, generally uh, her actions uh, changed the course of history and also ensured the continuation of uh, the Macedonian dynasty through uh, the famous emperor Basil II, who as we know uh, was named uh, the Bulgar Slayer. What I wanted to say about the way you wrote the story is that it's actually very difficult to do that with a medieval woman, just like you said, because the medieval sources don't help us. So for them, women are either absolutely virtuous saints who by virtue of being saintly, you never hear from, and like they're supposed to be quiet or you know, be modest wives or whatever and, and not see them or hear them, or they're monsters, <laughs> right? Who are, who are you know, full of vice and, and all of this. And they, there simply isn't really a, a narrative template for a, a, a strong woman who's negotiating the, all the dangers of living in the palace as she did. And I think this is what you show very well. Um, so finding your own way, your own storytelling way of getting around those two extremes. And uh, no, no. So that, I thought that was well done. Thank you about that. <laughs> so, Krisa, what drew, drew you to these characters at this time? When we tried to choose the topic and the characters, I started by saying that I wanted uh, the main character to be female, for sure. I wanted uh, it to be a strong woman because I may not know a lot about Byzantium, but I know that uh, there were some really significant women that uh, passed through all these years and uh, lived, you know, their uh, stories still are worth telling. Another, the, the thing that Spears mentioned, the fact that uh, she was not very, she's not a very popular character and her story is not very well known, is a major factor that made us, uh, her, that made her story very attractive. Uh, because in, it allowed us to sort of change, change some parts of history here and there and uh, create a final plot that uh, it catches the reader's attention, and and it, it is also easy to understand. We want uh, we wanted to approach the younger audience, the people who don't know a lot about that time, and we want uh, we wanted to keep their attention throughout the whole uh, story and uh, not make them feel like they're reading a story, a history book, or something uh, coming, you know, from their school years. So yes, uh, we, that's uh, what we wanted. Uh, we wanted to bring those life, uh, those characters to life in the pages of the graphic novel. And I think each of them has a very interesting story and a very interesting character. Non, uh, there's not 
like the bad one and the good one. They all have their reasons. And for me, it was very interesting to get to know them throughout uh, our research. Yes, uh, especially that cast of characters, uh, you know, Nikiforos Fokas and Simiskis and Tofano and all of these people and the eunuchs at the court that you have in there. Uh, they, no, they, they have multiple roles and their, their motivations and alliances certainly did not stay fixed during the, oh, your book covers what, like 35 years, something like something that. Something like that, yes. Um, and they shifted in their alliances um, you know, quite a bit. And, you know, it's interesting what you say about school. Like, honestly, as, a, as an educator and a scholar, I think it would be better for students in schools to be exposed to Byzantine history through a text like what you've written uh, than, than from the textbooks that are sometimes used. Yeah. No, I mean, like, seriously, I, I think that is just in terms of activating the imagination and getting people interested. I think that what you've done works so much better. You can have discussions about it. Um, I mean, yeah, you can, you know, someone could contest the historical accuracy of this or that thing but that, that doesn't matter like who really cares you know getting it all right for the purpose of instructing school children the point is to give them something visually stimulating that will stay with them yeah we didn't want to create something historically accurate because uh, we were not able to do that <laughs> if uh, for example uh, Chrisa agreed to make it for example some like 500 pages <laughs> maybe it would become uh, historically right, right. accurate but you know uh, the process of creating even one page is uh, really arduous so I was uh, happy even with that, you know, even with uh, this fictional story that created, but uh, it doesn't actually, um, it is not actually so inaccurate. No, uh, no, no. Compared to um, the primary sources, which uh, themselves, you know, uh, you, you know better than us, <laughs> actually. Uh, they, you know, they produce some, uh, uh, I could say, uh, controversial views over. Uh, Theophano. Sure. And I would also like, sorry, I would like also to add about uh, the characters that um, for me as an admirer of Byzantine history, I was really uh, happy to uh, work with uh, characters such as uh, Nikiforos Fokas and uh, John Tsimiskis or Konstantin Porphyrogenitos because um, they are actually very famous characters and that's also one of the reasons why we chose Theophano, uh, because she's a character who interacted with all of these uh, famous exactly. characters. Yeah. Um, so, Chrisa, let me ask you. So, as an as a illustrator, as a graphic artist, what appealed to you most about representing this culture? Like, you were thinking, okay, if we're going to tell a story about Byzantium, I'm definitely going to include a what? Like, wh what were you most looking for? Or what did you enjoy doing most now that you've done it? Well, I think that um, the most uh, impressive uh, parts of the graphic novel is the architecture. In, I mean, in some parts and some others, the interior design. Although this is not uh, my, <laughs> my favorite because I'm not very fond of uh, architectural designs. And they were very difficult to design. Um, but... Well, when I first started, there was not one particular thing that I was thinking that, wow, I'm going to draw this. Because as I said, I had no idea what to expect. I knew that I had to draw like a very intriguing character uh, and develop like uh, Theofano from a very young age and finally make her become like this strong uh, 
mature woman that she was during the the final chapters. Um, but I think uh, that, well, as most of us uh, know, that the, the part uh, of Byzantium that you, we feel connected as Greeks is Hagia Sophia. And uh, this is what was very impressive for me to draw because with Spears we had the, the chance, thank, uh, thankfully, to visit Hagia Sophia before it was turned into a mosque. And so we actually made a lot of research uh, about its interior and what it looked like back then. So uh, my view also changed because uh, uh, I thought that by drawing a Yosofia, I was going to draw like another Orthodox church, like the ones you see here in Greece. But by visiting that uh, massive building and reading about the interior design, I soon realized that it was nothing like I have ever imagined. Uh, and it was so famous for a reason. I mean, uh, <laughs> it, was, it used to be very impressive. And I wanted to depict that. I was very, you know, I wanted to bring the glory to this building. Tell me about the color purple. <laughs> the color purple. Uh, we use the word porphyry in uh, everyday speaking Greek. Uh, this still, this word still exists as a color. I just didn't know it was uh, coming from Byzantium and from that uh, specific uh, uh, material they used. Uh, Spears told me about it, of course, and uh, I read also a lot about it. Uh, so I made it the main color theme in the book. I should. It was the only choice I had, and I, I think <laughs> I shouldn't have used any other color. Yeah, it's the color that uh, decorated uh, all the clothes and the personal items of the emperor. It was the imperial color of the kings and queens. And also it, uh, it, there was one part uh, where we drew the porphyry room, the purple room. Yes. And uh, which, it was something I didn't know that existed. It was supposed to be completely decorated in porphyry stone and was completely red and all the purple born emperors were born there. So that's an information I didn't know about, <laughs> but I was glad to, to draw it. I was very happy to know about it. It's difficult to talk about that color in English because we don't really have the word porphyry uh, unless you're talking about a particular quarry in Egypt that produced the porphyry stone, but purple is not exactly, we're, we're not exactly yes. talking about purple. And so it's difficult sometimes to even translate when you come across it. It's neither red nor purple exactly. Uh, but I, I, think, I, mean, uh, I think historically also um, the Byzantines, uh, they didn't mean one specific color. I don't know sure. where I heard that, but by saying porphyry, Byzantines meant like a, a full range of deep yes. red and purple, I think. Yeah, it depends on the material you're using. But uh, I mean, let me just say you did a fantastic job with it. I mean, the 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 color in this volume is it's it's lush. <laughs> it's you no, know, it really is. It's luxuriant and it's very strong and it's exactly what is appropriate for I think the it also the the jewelry and I mean you really went all out in in representing all of that. Like you couldn't put too many you know, precious stones on something in Byzantium. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. I I didn't know much about uh, that uh, his, the fashion of the history, but I definitely knew that it was lavish and extravagant. I knew that for sure, and I knew that they were like you said, not enough stones and jewels in the clothes. Yeah. <laughs> I could put as much as I wanted, and it yeah, would yeah. never so, be enough. So tell me a, a detail that you had fun with, just just some little detail that you thought, oh, I got to add this in, uh, or you know, a choice that you made, in maybe even in just one panel. Oh, uh, there are a lot of details that were added, like cheeky little details that uh, we wanted to treat the Byzantine lovers <laughs> with. Uh, I, the one that was my favorite one is uh, the wall painting that was depicted uh, when in the chapter where Theophano uh, escorts Nesephos Pocas to Cappadocia. And there is one little picture where she looks at the wall and there's a wall painting there and where she stands next to Nicephorus Focas. And we actually stumbled across this information while reading about uh, her and her story, that uh, there is actually this wall painting that still exists in a village in Cappadocia. And you can mm -hmm. negotiate and it is in a church, uh, the church of Nicephorus Focas, I think it's called something like this. And we, we wanted to add like this uh, small detail that many readers might not notice it if they don't know about it. Yeah, so what I wanna so draw our audience attention to is, is that what you're doing is something difficult that most scholars can usually get away with not doing. And I mean it in the following way. When you're writing a historical novel, but as for example, that's a that's a different kind of imagining things that, you know, how they might have happened that one normally doesn't find in historical sources. But especially when you're trying to visualize this culture as you were doing, you have to make decisions. Also, you ha you, you, at some point, you're just going to have to decide this is how it was. This is what this thing looked like. You know, this is how these people moved and behaved. And, and like, are they standing close to each other? Are they super formal with each other? These are things that yeah, like my crowd can just avoid because like we don't really know uh, or their clothes like there's so much about Byzantine clothing right that, that, that we know the names we, we don't know exactly what these things are we don't know if they wore underwear we don't know but you have to make a decision about it like ultimately how do you think it I remember once um, I, I spoke with Peter Green now Peter Green was a, was a classicist he's at the University of Iowa for a while a long time, but he also wrote some novels about antiquity. He wrote a novel about Al Alcibiades and he wrote one about Sappho and that was his best one and so on. And he told me that he thought it was historians' responsibility at some point to write a historical novel because it would force them to come down somewhere on how life was like, what life was like. Uh, you just jump straight to that, but th that's difficult. Um, making those kinds of decisions because, you know, the evidence is so problematic. Let's go back to the story a little bit. So what what kind of a person do you want your readers to think Theofano was? Or rather, what kinds of issues was she wrestling with that you think deserve, you know, more discussion and for people to read this novel? Theofano um, is mostly known about her involvement in the conspiracy against uh, Nikiforos Fokas, 
that this is, I think, the the most famous moment where she was involved uh, in. She's a historical uh, personality who, as I said before, um, is a bit controversial among uh, uh, the historians, the chronographers of the primary uh, sources, because um, she's accused of being involved in um, uh, more murders, <laughs> I could say. Lots of uh, murders. Yes, in lots of murders. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm trying not to give up, you know, <laughs> uh, spoilers <laughs> from the graphic novel. Nobody knows if she was actually involved in these conspiracies. Of course and, uh, not. They're, yeah. they're like, po- it's, you know, allegations of poisoning. Like, how can you, you can't know these things, much less a thousand years later. Yeah, but for me, you know, it was really intriguing as a writer. When I read all these things, uh, I, you know, I imagined the story out of it, you know, of a, of a person who was either involved or indirectly involved or, you know, she did these things because she uh, had uh, her own reasons to, to do. So that's what I tried to create, uh, a character who, uh, you know, a reader uh, may see her actions and uh, may um, interpret them uh, according to their own morality, I could say. Uh, For example, one reader may say that what she did uh, was actually something heinous, or uh, some other may say that, okay, this is justifiable. Although the primary sources, as I said, uh, provide uh, contradicting uh, information, uh, I tried to get the most intriguing parts <laughs> from all of them. Yes, it's true that there is a pattern, uh, as you say, uh, about a beautiful woman uh, whom I would characterize as a femme fatale or a black widow, uh, whose uh, appearance uh, led her uh, to do some things that um, are considered uh, immoral or even um, uh, not accepted by uh the society during uh, that time. And uh, I believe that um, the chronographers uh, actually are based on that. They, create, they also created the story um, based on uh, these uh, um, aspects of uh, Theofano, uh, which, uh, uh, which concern her beauty and um, her low-born um, uh, descent, uh, which is uh, also one thing that <laughs> it's uh, controversial among the chronographers again. Right. Uh, just to mention, uh, some chronographers say that uh, she was actually a noble born. Uh, some others say that she was uh, just a common girl, a daughter of a tavern owner from uh, Sparta. So about Tefano, one can a historian could reasonably conclude that we actually don't know anything about her and that all of these evil actions are made up and everything that, I mean, she was scapegoated a couple of times for other people, for men's interests, she was thrown out of the palace and things like this. Or one can take everything at face value and say, we know quite a bit about her um, and it's not all flattering. And, you know, you, you tried to put her in a situation where her actions sort of made sense and uh, you know, from her standpoint, and she's not either too evil or, or she's not a complete cipher. Um, and I think that's very important. Okay, uh, Chrisa, let me ask you one more question. So just as a curiosity, uh, can you tell us the the process by which you illustrated something that you that we know about only from a text? So something that's 
uh, not like a Yosofia that you can vi visit and sort of visualize, but something that's referred to in a text that that is, you know, that offers some room for interpretation. And you you had to decide, okay, I'm going to do it this way. Yeah, like uh, like you mentioned, my job was more difficult than someone, some historian who would talk about that era and intentionally avoid some subjects that they don't know exactly uh, what they're talking about. And actually, we encountered that uh, while reading uh, through texts and bibliography, because there were some um, some words, let's say, that were mentioned. For example, like the clothing and the layers of uh, and pieces of its uh, fabric and clothes that they were mentioned. Uh, for example, saying a word like didakion or loron. Uh, but nobody really explained what they actually were. They knew that uh, uh, in a certain ceremony uh, the emperor would wear this or that, but they didn't explain it uh, very well. So I had to deal with uh, all these inaccuracies. I had to imagine like a general style and character of that era. Uh, and use it like consistently throughout uh, the comic. I was very much inspired by, by ancient Roman uh, architecture and interior designs, uh, patterns from uh, mosaics uh, of that time. And, uh, also with an element of uh, the Orthodox religion and uh, of course the extravagance. I knew that uh, they were very rich. Uh, they would like to like add on anything, uh, design-wise. Like uh, add uh, different elements and textures, like wood with marble and with jewels, and put uh, one on top of the other. And think that the more extravagant something is, the more powerful it looks. Although sometimes it might look a bit quiche. Uh, I don't know if there's another word for that. Uh, when I started uh, drawing all these patterns and uh, interior designs, I just had some things in mind as uh, someone who is not very familiar with that time. But I had in mind the double-headed eagle, and I also had in mind some mosaics uh, from Hagia Sophia that are everywhere around the internet. And then, uh, as we read through the history, we realized that, actually I realized that these things didn't exist back then and it was it would be a very easy way out for me to just decorate a banner or a background with a double-headed eagle but that wasn't uh, the choice I had so yeah I had to go through uh, a lot of reference images I could find on the internet um, I think coins uh, really helped me like the coins of that time that depicted the crowns and uh, the clothes and uh, of course uh, pictures from other artists on the internet and all this combination resulted in the final result that it's my view at least and i think it's a little accurate not a hundred percent but okay. <laughs> i think it's as accurate as i can yeah. get i would like to add that we had a really big problem with uh, symbols because um, while we read through the primary sources we didn't find any uh, definite answers towards our questions. So we mostly use uh, the hero symbol, uh, which is uh, uh, Constantine the Great uh, symbol. And also at some points we also use uh, the Aquila, the old, the ancient Roman Aquila, the one-headed uh, eagle. 
Quite right. So where can our listeners uh, find this book? Uh, right now, the book is available on Amazon.com. Uh, I would like also to point out for some readers that they could also find it on their uh, local Amazon sites in order to uh, save uh, shipping costs. It's, it's also available as an e-book, uh, as a Kindle e-book on Amazon. And also, <laughs> as uh, we're speaking today, it is also available on comicsology.com. Uh, most comic fans, comic book fans, actually know uh, about this site. It's a site that is uh, centered on, on uh, comic books. In the near future, we hope that we can actually make it available on uh, shelves of uh, bookstores. We're trying to find a distribution uh, partner. Yeah, so the version that you sent me was in English, and you say you're planning a Greek version as well? Uh, yes, <laughs> we are really trying to fight the Greek bureaucracy first <laughs> because uh, we are trying to fight the Greek bureaucracy. No, no, uh, I, I heard you. <laughs> because just like the Roman bureaucracy, it's uh, still uh, very complicated. <laughs> so um, Wait, why? <laughs> where does the Greek bureaucracy come in? Uh, it comes in uh, with the ISBN. Uh, because um, in order to um, create an ISBN, uh, you have to address the National Library of Greece. So <laughs> this is where Greek bureaucracy comes in and it needs uh, some kind of process in order to publish it. It will take some time in order to uh, have the Greek version uh, sure. complete and be able to um, uh, publish it. <laughs> good, good luck. I won't use the word business. Thank you for good luck. Um, all right. And... <laughs> Last question. So what's next for you? I think we are discussing uh, uh, many plots. Of course, there are a lot of interesting uh, stories in the Byzantine history. I think if this goes well and uh, we see that the public is really interested in uh, uh, the Byzantine era, we want to continue maybe making a sequel or prequel. There are many, many interesting stories. Or oh, else, nice. uh, maybe other medieval stories that we can find. It's uh, up to you know the audience, <laughs> audience's opinion. Yeah, if if you want to increase sales, I mean, what a publisher will tell you these days is that it has to be about the Crusades. Yes, yeah. of course. <laughs> we, <laughs> we thought uh, about it. <laughs> it's, it's my dream to someday you know visualize uh, the Alexiad. You know, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a grand story yeah. and, uh, you know, it's up to Chrisa <laughs> if she will <laughs> accept uh, this project. Yeah. Yes, no. No, he no. will lock me down the basement to <laughs> draw all day. Good. Well, uh, Chrisa, Spira, thank you very much. Uh, it thank was, you. It was thank a you. pleasure and to read your I work. would also want to say uh, to you, like, a special thank you to, for inviting us and uh, we didn't thank you enough for the oh, no, blurb no. you wrote. And no, 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 my, could, pleasure. Uh, yes. my pleasure. Yes. I would also very... like to add to, <laughs> sorry, because I forgot that before. Uh, I, I, I really, you know, I really got a lot of inspiration for my graphic novel from your book, uh, Roman Land. It's, uh, it actually clarifies a lot of things about the identity of uh, the Byzantines. So uh, I, I really needed to mention that to you. <laughs> Thanks. So the audience can blame me now. <laughs> All right. That's fine. I'll take it. All right. Uh, thank you both. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.